0: on now? There we go. Good morning. morning. I want to welcome everybody here this morning. Uh, The praise team did a marvelous job leading us in worship this morning. Amen. They really, really did. You guys, we can tell you guys put a lot of of effort into that. I want to uh, begin this morning by wishing all of you who are mothers a very, very happy Mother's Day. Um, And if you would allow me to do so, I would love to Just take a moment and honor you. Um, If you are a mother or, and I'm going to add this too, because this is just as important. If you are a mother or if you have served in the role of a mother figure to someone else, would you please stand? If you are a mom or a mother figure, would you please stand? Give these ladies a big round of applause. Thank you. Alan, am I at a good spot for that echo? You need me back up some on the, stage. on the stage? Okay, we're going for a walk, folks. We'll just come up here then. All right, is that better? Now turn me up. Okay, let's try it again. Good morning, everybody. All right, okay. Um, I tell you, this this is my first. Um, very first Mother's Day sermon here. Uh, I'm, I'm so honored. I tell you, a long time ago, I remember, Tiffany, you'll remember this, when I was a young preacher just starting off. And I tell you what, when you're 22 years old and you're preaching a Mother's Day sermon, man, you have no idea what to talk about. You really don't. So I came out, I remember my first few years, my, my perfunctory Mother's Day sermon was Proverbs chapter 31. Ladies, have you ever heard a Mother's Day sermon on Proverbs 31? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, the, you know, and I'll tell you too, a lot of times I would preach a Proverbs 31 sermon and, and um, I didn't know it, but I, people would come away, ladies would come away with feeling inadequate. Man, how could I measure up to that lady that's talked about in Proverbs chapter 31? And I remember early on just, just not really realizing that, you know, sometimes we preachers mean well, but, but sometimes we don't take into account the heart of a mom, or all the experiences that a lot of mothers go through when they show up on a day like today. And so, David, I really appreciate your comment earlier when you were um, introducing us, when you were welcoming us, because, you know, as I've grown older, as I've listened to moms, and and honestly, as I've listened to my wife over the years and watched my wife over the years, um, you know, there's a lot of experiences that mothers bring when they show up on Mother's Day. You've got some who have had less than ideal moms you know, as role models. You've got some ladies that are here who had you know, mothers that were drug addicted or you had moms who um, were abusive in different ways. And you'll have some mothers that grew up in, in broken homes and you'll have some ladies that show up and they're struggling to be a mom, but they've never had a mother themselves. And so they grew up without a mother. And then you'll have some that'll show up on Mother's Day and, and all their lives they wanted to be a mom, but for whatever reason, um, they haven't been able to have kids. And so when they show up on Mother's Day, they feel a pain inside of their heart. You have some women who have had miscarriages. You have some women who have had abortions, and they show up on Sunday, and they feel a pain of guilt, and they struggle with those things on the inside. Um, some of the ladies that are older, I've heard stories like this. The, some women remember what it was like in the the 50s and 60s, you know, being shuttled away to those homes for unwed mothers and um, giving birth by themselves and returning home and being, um, you know, completely uh, uh, told by their family that they would forget about the things that happened and eventually they would move on. And truth, are, truth is, rather, they don't forget and they don't move on. So it's tricky. You know, most of our families are, are messy. And, and I say that, that preaching a, a Mother's Day sermon can be difficult. Some ladies are delighted to show up and are ready to celebrate, and other ladies would honestly rather skip church on a Mother's Day. So the question is, how do we show love to our moms? How do we shower them with every bit of deser- or respect that they deserve while also taking note of the pain that some mothers feel on Mother's Day. If you would, I want you to take your Bibles out and go with me over to the book of Genesis chapter 2, because for this morning, what I want us to do, and, and we could talk about so many different things, but as I was praying this week and thinking about the message for this morning, the highest praise that I think that we can give a mother, the highest praise I believe that we can offer mothers on Mother's Day is not in all the things that mothers have accomplished or not accomplished, although we could do a whole sermon series on that. You moms do a lot of things for a lot of people, and many unsung heroes in this room who have done so many things that that honestly no one knows about because of the kind of person you are. But I think one of the greatest praises that we can give a mother on Mother's Day is to look at the scriptures and see the value that God himself Places on mothers. The value that God Himself places on mothers. In Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, is this on? Okay, that one's not on. All right. In Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, you see the original intent for man and woman. Right? This is the, where we go back to the Garden of Eden. This is the very beginning when God creates man and woman and he gives them the roles that they are to play in the world. We, we get to chapter 1 and we get a glimpse of what the world looked like before sin came into the equation. I want you to read Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28 with me. It's up here on the screen. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over all the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move upon the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. Now there's a lot of things we could talk about in the text and I don't want to get too theological this morning. But but there's two really important things that I see there when it talks about men and women. The first is that both men and women together were created in the image of God. That's the first thing you see. It's not that man is the image of God. He does image God, but he does not image God perfectly. Woman also images God, but she alone in her individuality does not image God perfectly. It's when man and woman come together in that union, in that covenant, in that marriage, when they love each other, as, to use New Testament language, as Christ loved the church, in that union together they are an image of God. Does that make sense? Okay? So that's the first thing. They rule or they image God together. And secondly, in Genesis chapter 1, you'll also notice that God did not just tell the man to rule over all creation. He told the man and the woman together to rule over all creation. There's no sense in Genesis chapter 1 that one is superior and that one is inferior. Sometimes you hear that, but that's not anywhere in the text. So, Together, they image God as they both exercise their authority to carry out God's divine mandate of being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion over all the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives us a a little bit more of a detailed account of the creation. And uh, it says this, Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So God gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib whom he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, again, there's so many, many things that we could talk about, but I just want to glean a few very important points out this morning. Here's one very important point. Number one, man is inadequate and incomplete without the woman. Did you catch that in the text? If you notice in verse 18 that God himself said, it's not good for man to be alone. When you go through the Genesis account, remember, I'm not going to go through it all over again, but over and over and over again, God creates this, and it's good. He creates this, and it's good. He creates this, and it's good. He gets all the way. He creates Adam, and he, 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 there's something missing. Because when you get to Adam, he says there's something that's not good. And what's not good about Adam? The woman's not here yet, right? It's not good because there needs to be a woman. And this is the, the, the first time he says that something isn't good. So the reason why I entitled this lesson, The Crescendo of All Creation, is because ladies, when you think about it, you were the very last thing that God created in all of his creation. And it was, Max Ann, I want to point at you because you've got this big smile on the face. It was only until Max Ann was created in this world that God said, it is very good. It is very good. You didn't know God thought that about you, didn't you, Max No. But the same goes for every one of you ladies. Here's what's amazing about this. When you look at that all of creation itself was not complete in God's eyes until he had made the woman. Now, why do I say that? I say that because, ladies, that means that there is something very, very special about you. You know, a colloquial, a modern way of saying it is there's, there's something that, that only you can bring to the table that we, as men, can't do. And that's a gift, that's a quality that God has given you for the blessing of, of your family and for the blessing of those around you and for the glory of God. So that's one thing that I that I thought of when I was reading the text when God created mothers. Another thing that I, that I thought about is that this helper that's talked about in the text, and by the way, if you have your Bibles and you like to mark in your Bibles, Take your pen and underline those words, suitable helper or helper. It's it's different in different translations. That's a really hard word to translate from the Hebrew. And I'm going to share something with you in a moment, ladies, that I think is going to bless you. Because nine times out of ten, when I talk to ladies, they've never seen this before. But Adam's helper, whatever that means, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, could not be superior and could also not be inferior. Did you notice that when God created the woman, he created her out of what? His side. He didn't create her to be superior to Adam because the only thing superior to Adam is God. He's not going to create her to be in the position of God, but then he also does not create uh, Eve to be inferior to Adam. That would be in the domain of the animals, right? She's not down there. No, he creates her from his side, which means she is to be with him and equal in all things. Amen? Amen. There's an old Jewish rabbi uh, that taught that, since before the time of Jesus that God's choice of the rib is significant because if God had made the woman from Adam's head that would mean that she would rule over him. If she had come from his feet that would mean that he would rule over her. But God made her from his side which meant she was to be close to his heart. Side by side. Then, thirdly, the third thing that I want to point out from the text is this right here. Let me go back. Woman was created to be A suitable helper for the man. Now, pause for a moment. When we think of a helper, what do we tend to think of? I've always kind of felt I've always kind of feel a little uncomfortable with that translation because when we think of helper, we tend to think of oh how cute mommy's little helper, right? Or if we think about it in the business sense, what is a helper? If 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 you're a plumber and you've got a helper. What is the helper? Do you, do, you, do you defer to the helper more or defer to the plumber more? No, the plumber is the one who has the wisdom and the experience. The helper is just the kid that's carrying the tools, right? That's how you and I tend to think of the word helper. But that's not, listen to me, that is not what the word means in the Hebrew. The word in Hebrew is the word ezer. Now, I'm going to give a little Hebrew lesson this morning. I want everyone to say the word ezer. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about what this word means. The word ezer does not mean any type of insubordination whatsoever. In fact, let me give you a few examples of how this word ezer is translated in other places in the Bible. Here we go. And, And I'm going to dedicate this next portion to my young daughter. Chloe, I want you to pay attention to this, okay? This is who God made you to be too. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun. That's another word for Israel. There's no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help. Ezra, you, to help you on the clouds of his majesty. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and Ezra. Say it with me. Say Ezra. And your glorious sword, your enemies will cover before you, and you will trample down their high places. Say it with me, here we go. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our Ezer, our help and our shield. Here's a couple of more. Psalm 89:19. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, and you said, "I have bestowed Ezer strength on a warrior." I have exalted a young man from among the people. Here we go, twice in Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2. This is the last verse. A song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my? Ezer Ezer come from. My? Comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I could go on, but do you see a picture starting to form here in the text? Because when you go through 21 times the Old Testament word, Ezer appears in the Old Testament twice in Genesis for the woman, three times for the nations that Israel appealed to for military aid. They went to them for help, for supplies, for provision, for them to be their helper in battle. And here's the shocking part. Sixteen times the word is used for God as Israel's helper. Is there anything inferior or insubordinate about the word Ezra? No. In fact, in the vast majority of cases, the word ezer in the Bible refers to God himself, and it describes one of the most important aspects of God's relationship with Israel, and that is his love and his care and his protection of Israel. And that's what the word connotates. That's what the word means. So when God calls Eve, Ezra, he's not saying that Eve is subordinate to Adam or that women are subordinate to men. If that were the case, then when God refers to himself as Ezra, then that would mean he's referring to himself as being subordinate to Israel. That makes no sense, does it? No. So what does the word mean? The word It means a rescuer. It means a liberator. It's a word that has a strong military uh, connotation to it. Again, referring to God's help of Israel, it refers to God as their shield, their defense, standing watch over his people. This is the one who comes alongside and fights for you, fights for the family, fights for the good things that God wants in our lives. Guys, I tell you what, when you put it all together, I mean, you realize that... What God was really saying, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create another human being that will completely fulfill what it means to image me and all of my qualities, and I will complete him by making a compliment that's suitable for him. Isn't that amazing? What you get when you put all these ideas together is ladies, moms, you were created by God to be a divine warrior for his glory. You were created by God to be a divine warrior for his glory. There are certain qualities that only a man can reflect and image God. But there are just as many qualities that only a woman who has surrendered to the Lord can reflect and image God. And God has created you, ladies, this morning. He has created you to be right alongside your husband as man's complement, completing what is lacking in man alone to carry out God's will upon the earth. Isn't that amazing? What an incredible mandate. What an incredible quality that God sees you. Now, I realize a man doesn't see uh, things the same way. Most of our history, I would dare say that most of our theology, when it comes to women, does not come out of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It comes out of Genesis chapter 3. And I think that's the wrong place to pull our ideas Perhaps this is why when you turn over to the Gospels, you see uh, Jesus treating women in such radically different ways. Why? Because he knew the value of a woman. He knew the value of a mother. See, the culture of the first century was uh, a lot lot like culture has been for many, many centuries. And that is male-dominated, where a woman's place in the first century was in the home. Uh, you know, a woman was the childbearer, She was the cook. She was the janitor. She was the one that was to maintain a hospitable home. She was never uh, asked anything about religious matters. Uh, her value or her input was not valuable. She was certainly never asked anything about civil matters or judicial matters. And men could pretty much divorce a woman for anything that they wanted to divorce her for in the first century. When it came to religious practices, women were pretty much overlooked. They were thought of as unimportant. In fact, Rabbi Eliezer, which is a Jewish rabbi from the first century, had this to say about women. He said, rather, should the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Ouch. So in that climate, Jesus comes along. And he turns these cultural expectations on their head and he refuses to treat women as inferior. In fact, whenever you see Jesus interacting with women in the Gospels, Jesus always, always, 100% of the time, treats women with respect, recognizing their dignity and their desires and their gifts. For example, think about this. I'm just, just pulling a few out here. How did Jesus see women? Well, Jesus would talk to women in public all the time. You know, I think about the story over in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well in Samaria. If you think about it, Jesus broke two cultural traditions that day. Not only is he talking to a Samaritan, which was taboo because the Jews and the Samaritans did not talk with each other. They didn't like each other because of racism. But there was another reason too, and that is, you don't talk to a woman in public. That was risque. That was something that you, again, do not do. And what does Jesus do here? Not only does he reveal to her that he is the Messiah... But he also calls her to be the first person to take the message of the gospel back to Samaria. Isn't that amazing? Just one example. Here's another one. Jesus not only spoke to women in public, which broke tradition, but he also showed them respect and compassion. There's this other story that takes place in the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 43 through 48. And if you remember, in Luke, chapter 8, there's this this person named Jairus. He was a synagogue official, and he had a daughter that was sick. And that she was about to die. And he begs Jesus to come and to to heal her. And so Jesus is on the way. And there's this woman in the crowd that, that meets him. Now, this woman who has had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. And if you know about the law, then this put her in a state of being unclean. So not only is she a woman, not only would you not... Just grab somebody out of the crowd, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. A woman would never go and touch a man without permission or anything like that. And secondly, she has an issue of blood, so she's unclean. So again, Jesus is breaking two very powerful cultural taboos here. And when um, she touches Jesus, he turns around. She cowers down. She's expecting Jesus to be upset and angry and say something judgmental to her. And what does Jesus do? He looks at her and he says, my daughter, your faith has made you well. He shows her love, he shows her compassion, and she shows her respect. And then finally, I just want to point out this one last thing. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, you have the story of Mary and Martha. And you remember why Mary's so upset at Martha? Mary's upset with Martha because Mary has very traditional views of women. Her job should be in the kitchen with her. But when she gets upset and goes around slamming those pots and pans in that kitchen looking for her sister, when she comes out in that living room, what does she see? She says, Martha, sitting down at the feet of Jesus. By the way, that is a very important phrase because in the first century, to sit at the feet of a rabbi meant that you were a disciple. Well, guess what, ladies? In the first century, you were not allowed to be disciples of a rabbi. And so she says, get up, don't you know you're supposed to be helping me out in the kitchen? And Jesus says, you will not take this away from her. Because what she has is the right thing. In other words, Jesus is inviting women to be learners and disciples of his. There's so many more examples we could look at. But the bottom line is, is that Jesus knew the value of women because he was the one that created women. He was the one in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 that was there with Adam that day when he created that suitable, suitable helper that would complement Adam. He knew the value of a woman, that she was the Ezra of God, that she's the spiritual warrior. That is to stand right alongside Adam, the man who is a spiritual warrior for his home. Adam, made in the image of God and now called to share that image with his wife as they both seek to follow Jesus Christ and to lead their family to the Lord. What a powerful thing. You know, God himself often appeals to These qualities as well that are unique to women in Scripture. A lot of people don't realize this, but God often refers to himself with feminine attributes. David, you mentioned one a little bit earlier, but I just want to mention a few up here on the board. God comforts his people like a mother comforts her child, Isaiah 66, 13. God cares for his people like a midwife that cares for the child that she just delivered, Psalm 22, 9 through 10. God is described like a mother eagle hovering over her young in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. God seeks the lost, it says, like a housekeeper trying to find her lost coin in Luke 15. And then finally, Hosea chapter 13, verse 8. And let me tell you what, I, I did not realize the whole mama bear thing until we had five kids. And let me tell you what, she can be a mama bear uh, in, in many, many ways, but God experiences the fury of a mother bear robbed of her cubs in Hosea chapter 13, verse 8. So many qualities. I'm going to stop here. I don't want to go too long, but, but like, this, this, like Jesus, here's what we want to do this morning for you moms. We want to affirm the incredible God-given qualities that God has uniquely given you that only a woman can offer as she complements, as she completes the relationship that she has with her husband, the relationship she has with her children at home. I tell you, having five kids of my own, I have seen um, firsthand how uniquely gifted women are to, to nurture and to raise kids, to serve and to teach. I've been blessed to uh, be with my wife now for 20. This will be 21 years in May, I believe. I get that right? She said yes, so it's right. Thank you. Um, She has done an incredible job of of raising our kids, not perfect by any stretch, but here's the beautiful thing. She knows it. (laughs) She knows she's not perfect, and she does everything that she can do to better herself and to better our family. And that's a reflection of God. When you think of God's love, we not only think of the strong, protective, wise father who will go to war for us if we need him to, but we also remember his tender, nurturing, comforting care, which is seen beautifully, I think, from our mothers. So for this morning on Mother's Day, we want to thank you. We thank you, moms. We thank you for all that you do. Um, I'm going to say it again. You are the crescendo of all of God's creation. Um, Your role as a mom is hard, but it is valuable, valuable kingdom work. So for all of your unseen sacrifices, just know that they are all seen by the Father. And the Bible tells us that not even a cold cup of water is given to someone else without you you not losing your reward. So know that every single sacrifice you make is seen by the Father and that you will not lose your reward. Would you go to with me in prayer? And uh, we're going to close out this morning and we're going to pray for our moms. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this morning. This morning, we desire in our hearts to show our love and gratitude and praise for the gift of mothers. We pray for all of our mothers and for all those who have served as a mother to us. We pray for the single moms. We pray for the grieving moms. We pray for those who have no moms. And we pray for those who hope to be moms one day. Lord, we thank you for the role that these women play in our lives and families. We thank you for their teachings, their wisdom, their patience, their understanding, and their grace. We thank you for the physical and emotional and spiritual gifts that they possess. And I pray that you would help all of our mothers to be a blessing upon their children. Whether delivering affirmation or discipline, I pray that you help every word and action be done in love and through Christ. And I pray that our children would take time, not only today, but every day, to honor their mothers. And may each mother live as an ezer of God before you. A blessing to even beyond their households, reaching into their extended families and communities and churches and schools and places of work. Lord, be with these women. Thank you again for their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.